So I, I don't know if you realize this, but um, my family and I are about half awake right now. We, <laughs> we came in late last night from a trip to California that we really weren't planning on, but we found an opportunity to sneak away, steal away some days together as a family. We attended a camp meeting out in Central California, our former home. And um, on the way back, uh, we, you know, we were in the San Jose airport with plenty of time to spare. That was an answer to prayer in itself. Um, that doesn't normally happen. Normally, we're sweating on the way to the gate, right? Two hours before our flight even left. Anyway, so, so we, we were just kind of cruising down uh, the hallway to our gate. And we, we came across this um, encased... I don't know what you'd call it. If there's a technical name for these wire metal like tracks for marbles to kind of go down on you know, i don't know if you if you go to the the castle rock library there's one in the kids section there really what is it called a maze, a maze. okay a marble maze kind of a anyways it's just kind of it runs on a rotary type of thing and the marbles go up and it follows a track and you just kind of watch it and we spent a good 15 minutes actually just kind of observing this thing we saw marble after marble go, and, you know, it, it gets kind of predictable, but there are certain things where it could go one way, it could go another way, and this one was kind of special. It had some sound effects, too, so when the marbles hit certain spots, it would chime and hit blocks and things like that, but, yeah, anyway, <laughs> but um, the reality is that as we watched this, we, we would kind of predict what would happen next, and the reality is that when it comes to the Christian life, the Christian life is far from predictable. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I mean, you've got tree roots growing under your sewer system, right? I mean, you're trying to, to, to create a household of sunshine and home at home. And then, <laughs> there's the newest mom over there. Just, yeah, right? You try to go four hours at a stretch, and then you realize that's turning into seven. Whatever the case might be, life is not formulaic. It's not clockwork. It's not cookie cutter. What's interesting is as we were watching, there was one uh, oops in the midst of that, one of the marbles actually missed its target. It, it was supposed to hop into a cone, and it totally missed the target. And it's just kind of sitting at the bottom of the encasement. Anyway, so sometimes life just doesn't go as planned. And the reality is that the Christian life is far from formula. It's not cookie cutter. And I think in Paul, Paul's final word here in the letter to, Ephes- to the Ephesian church, and to all of us, he's wanting to remind us that the Christian life requires serious and intense intentionality. In fact, he would go so far as to say it requires fight and grit. If you're there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness. Where? In the heavenly places. You know, as you review the letter to Ephesians, I know it's been a, a, a more than a nine-week journey. We've kind of spread this out a little bit. But as you review the letter to, Ephes- to the Ephesians, you'll notice that there's a, a, a pretty basic structure that, you know, in Hebrew thinking, this is called a chiastic structure. Instead of, uh, you know, kind of an introductory statement and then giving us three points of support, Hebrew authors will often kind of line up their points and then get to a punchline right in the middle and then kind of back their way out of it in a stair-step sort of fashion. 
And in the letter to Ephesians, Paul starts with, in chapter 1, there, we have these spiritual blessings in heavenly places, right? These are ours that we're chosen, we have an inheritance, we have redemption through Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, he gives us a glimpse of saving grace that we are no longer dead in our transgressions, but we have been made alive through the mercy of God. Then there's a picture of uniting grace, that, that the two that, that seem so far apart, that the Jews and the Gentiles, this and the that, that God's grace has created a new humanity. And then right in the middle, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays for this mystery of grace to be lived out. Right? It's that beautiful prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, that you may comprehend the full dimensions of God's love, the, the length, the width, the height, the depth of God's love. All these, He's praying for the mystery to be realized. And then in 4, 5, and 6, he's starting to walk back out. He shows us how to walk worthy in terms of walking in a united fashion as the body of Christ. How to walk worthy in terms of putting off the old and putting on the new. How to imitate God in our relationships. And then finally he closes out, sorry, this should say A prime, spiritual forces in heavenly places. Very interesting that you, see, you kind of see the parallel structure there, right? A matches with A prime, B with B prime, C with C prime, and the, the letter D, really that's kind of the punchline of it all, to comprehend the full dimensions of God's love. And what I noticed just as we looked at this parallel here, the, the reality is that as Paul is winding down his letter, he's recalling themes that he has been hitting on all along. Particularly the ones about spiritual blessings where? In heavenly places. And now Paul is talking about spiritual forces with which we're wrestling against in heavenly places. And so, just like uh, these heavenly blessings in chapter 1, just like these spiritual blessings are, are already ours to obtain, Paul wants us to know that this spiritual battle, this, this warfare, it, God has already given us ample provision to obtain to put on. Are you following today? Yes or no? Yeah? It's, it's pretty neat. Um, really, Paul's final word is an appeal to live the life of grace with intentionality and personal daily effort to live the life of grace in God's strength and in God's armor. Okay? So this is how we're going to look at this. We're just going to look at verses 10 through 18, basically. And... Uh, We'll start it off again in verse 10. Finally, or in the remainder, the final word, the New Living Translation says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in what? Or in who? In the Lord and in the power of whose might? His might. Amen. To live out the life of grace, to live, to walk worthy, to put off the old, to put on the new, to imitate God as dear children. It requires God's strength and not our own. The emphasis is on whose power this really is. Remember the context of this, you know, kind of the immediate context. Uh, in chapter 5, we were talking about walking worthy, how to put off the old, put on the new, how to imitate God in our relationships, how to break off from the old life, how to imitate God and submit to one another in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces. When we remember this context, we, were, we, we start to realize, oh, Paul knows what he's talking about. <laughs> When it comes to, to really living a transformed life, that is not something you and I can do on our own. Right? When it comes to living a submitted life in our marriages, 
in our parenting, that is definitely not something we can do on our own. Can I get a witness? Right? <laughs> I mean, think about this. This, uh, this is the, the immediate context. Mutual submission, what we were talking about last week. Mutual submission is really not about the, the lack of power. Mutual submission is actually the expression of having God's power. Uh, mutual submission is not just saying, I am a doormat to walk on. Mutual submission is saying, I'm living in the power of God to actually live a life of service and giving of myself to those around me. It's only when we're strong in the Lord that we can fulfill the highest claims of Christianity, the highest ideals of imitating God. That's why in verse 11, he, he goes on to, to carry this idea of strength. I'm sorry, the, the end of verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of of his might. Does anybody have a different version there besides the power of his might? Does anybody else's Bible say it differently? The strength of his mighty power or something like that? Yeah? What's interesting is that this, this is not talking about dunamis power. We've talked a little bit about dunamis power before, dynamite power, the, the capacity to just kind of blow things up. It's talking about ability there. But this is a different word for power. This, this word for power is kratos, which means not just ability, but dominion, like conquering power. And so what Paul is saying is when it comes to imitating God and when it comes to living the Christian life, what we need is not just the ability to do so. We need conquering power to do so. The power of his might, it, it implies that there is a force to be overcome. It implies that there is a resistance against this effort. And again, this theme, this motif of resistance and warfare is something that Paul is going to just flesh out for us. The reality is there is a current going the opposite way of our desire to live in submission to one another. There is a very real current going the opposite way in terms of our goals to live a new transformed life. And what is that? In verse 11, he, he makes it very clear. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of who? Of devil. Of the devil. I don't know if you... I don't know. It's, it's easy to kind of think of the devil as like a, a figment of our imagination. But Paul recognizes that the devil is very real and formidable. I mean, you think about the story of the Ephesians... I don't know if you remember any of the story about the believers in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 19, you hear some of these stories that are happening. I mean, Acts chapter 19 starts out with 12 disciples who had been baptized in John's baptism, but had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Okay? They were not aware of heavenly power, but they were fully aware of spiritual power. Why? Because in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11, you start seeing these glimpses. There are seven sons of Sceva. I don't know if you remember this story. Seven sons of Sceva. They were Jewish exorcists. And they're trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. But the demons talk back to them. And they say, well, what, what they try to do is, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, be cast out. And the demons talk back to them. Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? And then with, with demonic kung fu power, they, they jump on these guys and just run them out of town. This is, this is scary stuff. This is real stuff. 
The believers in Ephesus were well aware that there were spiritual forces to wrestle against. And in fact, later on in the chapter, they're so overwhelmed by this that, that they create a bonfire of all their books regarding magic practices. Okay, so, so these are people that are well aware of spiritual forces. They had to be clued in to the Holy Spirit. And here Paul is reminding them, hey guys, there is a real enemy. And he uses this word, in the New King James it says the wiles of the devil. The Greek, the, the Greek word there is methodeia. In other words, the methods and schemes and strategies of the enemy. I want us to understand something, that we must be as intentional to put on God's whole armor, as intentional as the enemy is methodical to scheme against us. There is a very real enemy with millennia of experience, of greater intelligence and greater capacity than you and me, and he's fighting for our lives. question is, are we fighting with that kind of intensity and that kind of methodical intentionality? to fight for our lives. Paul's final word is, put on the whole armor of God. Stand strong in the Lord and the power of His might, because you are no match for this one that roars about as a roaring lion, seeking whomever, whatever household, whatever marriage, whatever intent to follow Jesus, He will devour. He's the, the thief that comes to steal, to, to kill, and to destroy, according to John 10, verse 10. But Jesus came that we might have life. And do we really have this kind of awareness that Paul had? Sometimes I wonder. Do we consider the reality that, that we are literally in the crosshairs of the enemy? An arch enemy that is, like I said, of unfathomable intellect and experience. This is a wrestle. This is a struggle. That's why Paul in verse 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The word for wrestle there, it's a, in Greek literature, it's, um, it's referencing a, a hand-to-hand combat between opponents where the only one who wins is not the one who inflicts the greatest wound, but the only one who wins is the one who ends up on top with his hand on the neck. Okay, That's, that's the kind of wrestle that we're up against. It's decided by being able to, to hold him down, and, and this is a life-and-death reality. The question I want us to consider today before moving on is, what are we wrestling against? What, are, what do you feel like you're wrestling against? What situations, what dynamics do you feel are, are trying to, to suffocate the life out of you? Do you feel that your neck is being throttled by? When I was uh, out in California this week, um, one of the individuals that I heard speaking just, you know, he wasn't even the main speaker, but just uh, providing some MC transition comments. And he made an, an observation that I thought was really interesting. He was talking about how at most of the prayer meetings he's been to, whenever he gathers for prayer, it's, and they open up for a prayer request, you know, a time of sharing and things like that. Um, he observed that in his experience, more often than not, we are quick to share about, um, you know, issues of, I don't know, issues and crises of health, you know? I mean, like for your daughter, Sierra, uh, for a while we were praying for Jacob. Um, you know, I know that we've been praying for, for several of our, of our families and relatives and things. And not to say that praying for one another's health and recovery is, is not necessary. 
But he was making the observation that when we pray for these things, we stop at praying for each other's health, as if that's the only thing we wrestle against. I'll ask you again, what are you wrestling against? I think we're wrestling more than, against more than just being healthy. If we were to admit it, what is your marriage wrestling against? What is your own heart wrestling against when nobody is watching? What are we feeling insufficient to overcome and experience? If we were to be honest, we wrestle against things of just as much import and sense of helplessness. Things like pride. Things like addictions. Things like doubts and questions and insecurity in Jesus. Tensions in the home. I tell you, we're wrestling in a lot of different ways. And in those regards, we need to be just as intense and intentional to be strong in Jesus, to be strong in Jesus. Because our our wrestle is not, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Remember the context of this. Uh, You know, in chapter five, he's talking about husbands loving wives and wives respecting husbands. In chapter six, he's talking about children obeying parents and fathers not provoking their children. You know, all these kinds of things. God's saving grace and uniting grace calls us to, yes, it, it puts off the old and put on the new. Um, that wrestle, when it comes to experiencing transformation in our own lives, that wrestle is not just against me, myself, and I. That wrestle is against a real enemy who wants to make sure that your addictions stay your addictions and that your chains stay, stay as your bonds, okay? And then in our, when we want to live out submitted relationships in mutual submission, I mean, that, that's a wrestle too. And again... I'll say this, you're not arguing with your spouse. The wrestle is not against your flesh and blood. You're not arguing with your parent or your child. There is a real enemy behind the scenes. Principalities and powers. The reality that Paul understands that we often feel that our greatest wrestling is against flesh and blood, whether it be ourselves or others. But Paul is trying to pull back the curtains just for a bit. Pull back the curtains to let us know that all that tension, all that frustration, all that, the, the barriers and the walls we come against in our own character development, in the, the growth of our home and healthier relationships, all of the walls that we face, there is a con- there, that's a shadow of a conflict that's more real than the conflict that we're facing there. We should avoid fighting the wrong enemy. <laughs> Sometimes we feel like we're We're fighting this neighbor or that relationship or this, that situation or that habit. But really, we're fighting an enemy who has wiles. We need to avoid fighting the wrong enemy and really avoid underestimating the enemy. And and note this, that if our enemy is not of flesh and blood, then isn't it true that our victory is not of flesh and blood? (laughs) When we realize who the real enemy is, we'll stop relying upon our own selves to do that. And so what's the strategy? What's the strategy for combat? Um, According to verse, where is it now? Verse 13. Here's the, the kind of, okay, these are our marching orders in this spiritual warfare. Therefore, take up the what? The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day And having done all, 
You know, having done all to take up the armor, having done all to imitate God as dear children, having done all, all to put off the old and put on the new, having done all, what is our marching order? To stand. You see it there? And having done all, to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore. And then he starts listing six components of what we know as the armor of God, right? Stand. Really interesting that, that Paul's strategy for combat against the wiles of the devil boils down to standing. <laughs> By the exercise of our will and choice, we do our part to obtain God's mighty power, to take on the whole armor of God, and then to stand. Not just to, you know, to be upright, but to stand firm, to hold our ground. Now, I'm not a warrior. I'm not military, right? Some of us have had experience frontline that you know what it's like to stand your ground. You know what it takes to stand your ground. I, as I'm looking at this, I see some implications about Paul's strategy. Paul's strategy is not to go willy-nilly, you know, like all the way into enemy lines. Paul's strategy is to stand, stand your ground. And there are some implications that I want to explore first before moving on. It, this implies position. The priority here is position. We're not reaching for something. We're not trying to obtain something because that something is already ours. (laughs) It's grace. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's already ours. We have the vantage ground. We have the firm footing. Paul's call is don't retreat from it. Stand there. Stand firm. Hold your position. The battle of character You've got salvation. You are a child. You are accepted in the beloved. You are already seated in heavenly places with Christ. God has already saved us by grace and made us alive together with Him. We are His workmanship. Stand your ground. He is our peace. Has already made the two become one. That's our position. So stand. The other dynamic of this that I see, again, I'm my limited perspective of of having not ever been in the thick of it when it comes to actual warfare, I realize that when Paul calls us to stand and to hold this position, he also wants us to know where our power comes from to hold this position. You just stand firm, and you stand firm in the Lord. Right? We've already kind of been hitting on this. Stand firm in the Lord and in the power of His might. It reminds me of, of Moses as they are, I guess they had really no choice but to stand their ground, as they were leaving Egypt, and they were up against the Red Sea. Do you remember what Moses said to the children of Israel? This was their strategy. Oh, amazing strategy, Moses. And, and, and here it is. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to what? To be still. So stand. Stand firm. When Paul is telling us as as soldiers of the cross to stand firm, he's reminding us that this fight is not yours. Your fight to live a new life, your fight to have a happy, happy home, that fight is not yours. It is the Lord's. And the other implication that I see here We have a position that's already ours. We have power that's in God alone. But there's a dynamic of plurality 
that Paul wants us to recognize. I don't know, standing ground is not, is not a, um, it doesn't seem like a, an order that you would give to a, a, a lone ranger, okay? This is, this, is a, this is a command that you give to a group, a company that stands together. The call to stand is about we, not me. Do you follow this? I don't know. A lot of times when I've come to Ephesians chapter 6, I'm thinking about my, me, myself, and I, and my own battles. But what if Paul has in mind a battle that we all chip in to? Yeah, it's the battle of our character. Yeah, it's the battle to live a happy home and mutually submitted relationships and stuff. But this is something that I need to depend on God's power for. And you know what else I need? I need the body of Christ for that. If I want to grow I want to put off the old and put on the new. If I want to have, uh, be able to imitate God as dear children, again, the, the implication there is not as a dear child, but as dear children. There's a plurality there. Stand firm together. I mean, you think about the armor that's listed here, and one of those things is the shield of faith. Yeah, shields do well when you're by yourself, but man, when you're together, they, you know, they, they kind of do this scale effect where they... they They overlap and overlay each other as fiery darts come, and the strength is found in numbers. So standing firm is about holding a position that's already ours. Standing firm is about standing in God's strength and not our own. Standing firm is about standing firm not just alone, but in numbers. And we in our Western Christianity, I think we need to be often reminded of this. That our capacity to live out the life of grace is not found in our Lone Ranger escapades, but in the context of community. And I hope we can be that for each other. When you're feeling weak, rely on someone else's strength. I think that's what God created the body of Christ to be and to do. So what has God provided then in this armor? You know, we'll, we'll just kind of breeze through this, but some people look at, at the armor of God here and they of one commentary I read kind of categorized the different pieces of armor as defensive uh, pieces of armor and offensive weapons, you know. Um, but the way I'm seeing this, especially just with how Paul seems to be hitting on this idea of walking out the life of grace, walking worthy, both in our personal growth, you know, putting off the old, putting on the new, as well as our relational growth. Um, I think God's whole armor here is related to those very things. It's relational provisions, things that he will give us to create the kind of community where we can be the new humanity that Ephesians 2 talks about, and also personal provisions, how we can experience the new on a day-by-day basis. So the first three to me seem like they're relational in nature. You, you notice that it's the belt of truth. Right? Where are we? Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, right? Having wrapped around your waist the, the truth of God's word, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's kind of the most awkward stepsister of the, the pieces of, of armor right there. But those first three, I think, are relational in nature. When it comes to having wholeness in our homes, when it comes to having wholeness in our, in our uh, relating to one another, the, the most intimate of our relationships, as well as those ever-expanding circles, we need truth, right? Honesty is the basis for trust and trustworthiness. It's the essential element of whole and healthy relationships. We need truth. Without it, 
things fall down. Without it, we are left unguarded. We need righteousness, right doing, right living, right thinking for right decision making and right relationships. We need Christ's righteousness. Caring for others' best interest. And you know what else we need? We need shoes that move us in direction towards each other, not away from each other. Notice what these shoes are like. They're the shoes, having shod your feet with the preparation or readiness that comes from what? The gospel of peace. The gospel of wholeness. Nothing missing, nothing broken. We need shoes like that because oftentimes when we're experiencing rub in our relationships, my feet want to run. But we need shoes that will run too, that will build bridges because of the gospel of peace. The next three help us to stand strong in our personal growth. These are personal provisions. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This is trusting God's strength and not our own. This is righteousness by faith. This is really the life of Abraham that we were talking about earlier. This is, this is what it boils down to. Trusting to God's strength and not our own. We have also the helmet of salvation, the security and assurance that comes from knowing that God has saved us, that God has forgiven us. And this, by the way, one, when we... When the devil does a number on us and we forget that we've been forgiven, we stop growing. I don't know if you realize that. We stop, I, don't, I don't think I put this on the screen. Keep a finger here. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is powerful. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you ever feel like in your personal journey, you, you've been wanting to experience the new, but you haven't been able to put off the old. If you've been growing or wanting to experience growth in different areas, but you haven't, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 gives us a, a serious, profound cause and effect relationship. 2 Peter, it's a very small letter there right before uh, the Johns. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. If you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, this is awesome. So verses 5 through 8, he gives us the, this list of things in which we grow. Okay? Um, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, etc., etc., etc. Really awesome list. But then notice verse 9. For he who lacks these things, in other words, he who's not going from one step of the ladder to the next, he who's not experiencing growth upon growth day by day, I, I think it's Proverbs 4.18 that says that the path of the just is like the first gleam of dawn that grows brighter and brighter to the full light of day. If we're not experiencing that ever-brightening walk with God, verse 9. For he who lacks these things is... What's the next word in your Bible? Short-sighted. Anybody else nearsighted in here? Yeah, things start becoming fuzzy. <laughs> well, the farther away it is. Well, what have we lost sight of? He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Maybe your Bible says forgiven from his past sins. When we take on the helmet of salvation, this gives us the basis for growth. We don't grow in order to be forgiven, in order to have God's uh, merited favor. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. It's because we've been forgiven that we could ever grow in grace. So put on that helmet of salvation. I know for me, the enemy loves to, to take off that helmet. The enemy loves to, to remind me that, 
that they're th- putting thoughts and things. That, that's, that's why I think it's a helmet, <laughs> guarding, guarding our very thoughts, the assurance that God has forgiven us. So the, the, the personal provisions here are the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. But notice also in verse 17, and the sword, I'm sorry, this is now back in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. The last piece of armor here. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We can't grow without God's Word. Mm. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, this is, as elsewhere in the New Testament, it's, it's the milk that causes us to grow. In John 17, 17, when Jesus is praying, He says, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. If you want to experience an ever-brightening walk with God, growing from day to day, putting off the old, putting on the new, it's going to come as a result of the word. This sword that Hebrews 4.12 says is living and active and is able to cut to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is armor that we need to take up to grow both in our relationships and in our character. And then in verse 18, some people debate whether or not there should be a seventh, you know, just to kind of complete that seven, uh, the seventh piece of the armor of God. I think it's more than just a piece of the armor. I think it's kind of the, the, uh, the atmosphere that actually empowers the other pieces of the armor to even have effect in our lives. This is part of heaven's arsenal that makes it all effectual. Verse 18 Praying always. Praying always with what kind of prayer in your Bible? All prayer. I don't know if you realize that prayer is not (laughs) one-dimensional. Nor is it one way. Prayer is two-way and it's got many facets to it. Not just petition, but also praise. Not just pouring out our griefs, but receiving God's grace. This is all part of... So praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In other words, we're praying with all prayer, not just for myself, but for all the saints. It's the we, not me dynamic again of this armor of God. Why? Because our victory and standing is not just about me. It's about us. And we do this with intense perseverance. I love this. All, praying always with all prayer, with all perseverance for all the saints. And I wonder if we were to examine our prayer lives, if, if it'd be more apt to describe it as some prayer, <laughs> sometimes, with some perseverance for some of the saints. Paul is saying, hey, hey, in this final word, if you really want to live the life of grace, then grab all prayer at all times with all perseverance. Not just for your favorites, but for all the saints. Hmm. So as you take a look at this, and you see God's call to stand, and you see the provisions that He's given us to stand in the Lord, what's your takeaway? (laughs) What is God impressing upon your heart? I want to encourage you today that if you're wrestling with anything, anyone, If you're battling today, be strong and be strong in the Lord. 
Take up not your own efforts, but take up God's provisions. He's already given them to you. He's already given them to me. Let's be strong in the Lord and the power of his victorious strength. How many of you want to say, yeah, I want to build my life on that kind of strength today. Amen. Amen.